everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Tell Me More, where we are trying to create better conversations in healthcare. This is an episode that's going to sort of straddle both of my types of episodes. So we love to talk to patients about their experiences in healthcare conversations, but I also love to talk about the business of medicine because without successful, thriving medical practices, healthcare suffers and patient outcomes suffers. So my guest today is an expert in both areas and so, so interesting. I'm just thrilled to have him on the show. Chuck Rinker, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you much for having me. So just to bring our listeners up to speed, Chuck, you are you are the CEO of Personas, a digital staffing company. Basically, you focus on using AI to improve staffing across many different sectors, right? And your background was in gaming. So you're very familiar in, you know, human experience and engagement, right? right. And boy, do we need that in healthcare. So you, you've started this company, iHealth Assist, to incorporate some artificial intelligence technology and avatar into the healthcare experience with the hopes of improving it for patients first, but also improving it for those of us healthcare providers who are struggling with staffing and just being everywhere uh, every time, which is impossible. Um, and you've also been a patient so take me through your journey. How did you end up with iHealth Assist through your own personal experience? Yeah, great question. And I'll try to keep it brief because it, it's, it's a long one coming because I was actually a, raised a cattle farmer in Virginia, of all things. So wow. I went from cattle farming to human AI. But let's just say what, where it started all was around the, the um, human engagement factor. Um, as you mentioned, I do have a background in gaming. I was into a lot of uh, simulation and training in, in some younger years around the, the D.C. area. And when I got into gaming, the one thing I learned about gaming was the, the power of engagement. And that engagement can be in the form of, um, you hate to use the word addicted when you're talking about a healthcare um, um, a podcast, but, you know, the, the younger generation and even the mid-generation that I grew up with um, um, really became pretty addicted to, to gaming. And so it, it kind of, Spending a career in there and doing the likes of NCAA college football, I directed that in the Madden series. You know, you were just in, enticing tens of thousands to almost millions of, of, of players to, to put a level of uh, commitment into their gaming experiences. And a lot of that was through the personal engagement, the human engagement. What is that engagement component? And people think AI is so new. You know, we, we've been doing AI when you, when you have 22 football players running around the field and some of them are passing, some of them are running, some of them are blocking. Every single one of those has their own basic AI. Now, yeah. it's, it's, it's advanced enough that we now um, have taken AI to the level of making it more able to communicate with humans. And that's where you had alluded to something that I will say is our number one response I have to always address is the whole ooh, AI is scary? AI is going to take people away, and and I kind of jokingly say, you know, Chat GPT and voice to text and all this natural language parsing and everything you see that makes these digital humans um, so almost creepy um, is really nothing more than a productivity tool that has eyes and ears. You know, what if your laptop had eyeballs? And people get scared <laughs> of it when you put eyeballs on it because it's a little too human, and so. Um, Fast forward to to our health assist, the product line built out of this personality engine. We started building 
these personalities, digital personalities for um, retail and commercial. That's, you know, that's where the, the cash flow is going. And that's uh, uh, some of the easier targets where I'll call the targets marketing. You know, how do you engage your customers? And so as um as I got fast forwarded into um, several installations of this digital personality, um, my wife was struck with breast cancer. She's she's oh. fine. Um, but within 12 months of that, I was struck with late stage colon cancer. And then oh a few, three years after that, she was struck with a second bout of, of of cancer. So what we're finding is as we got more and more into what can what what can digital personalities do, and, and what what are they good at, and what they're good at is replacing um, the mundane and the repetitive. And now with the Chat GPTs and the voice of, uh, information we always talked about there, are the different technologies we talked about there in brief, we're now able to. Um, communicate at a human level. We're no longer having to teach people how to use technology. We're now able to teach technology how to communicate as humans. So you got those two things, and that's where this uh, this great uh, coming together, as I say, w- w- is happening, where we now have the capability of taking the load off of our human our HR staff. As you know, probably better than anybody, uh, uh, Dr. Meyer, you know, the, the, the amount of um, um, frontline worker stress and the amount of, and the, we do work in the UK too, and the amount of, of pressure that's put on our healthcare system right now, and the human capital of that healthcare system is, is overwhelming, and it's going, it's going, it's going to bring if it hasn't already brought certain sectors of the world to its knees because of oh, the yeah. overwhelming efforts that, that are needed there. So what we've done with iHealth Assist, which quite honestly is really, I wouldn't say yes, but it's really a repurposing of this digital, this retail digital personality engine we created. And to how can we make that serve as staff augmentation, staff replacement, staff augmentation? What if I was to t- go to you and say, hey, I can take, you know, three of your PCPs and take 20% or 30% of their workload off of them. And that workload is the the, the more repetitive, re- uh, uh, mundane um, process you have to get through and then allow you to turn that focus onto your patient population. And do things that you as humans, that you as primary care physicians and specialists can only do. And so the purpose is not to replace. The purpose is not just to save a dollar. The purpose is to give people back the ability to be more human. So there was a really interesting speech I did um, way back at uh, um, Infocom in 2019. And the title of my presentation was actually Being Human. And mm. now if people really stopped and opened up the curtain a little, AI and digitizing personalities to speak with patients and to speak with other healthcare professionals isn't taking our humanity away. It's actually giving it back to you because our technology is now human. It communicates as human. You don't have to learn about technology. The technology can now learn about you. Our characters are multicultural. They can speak 140 languages. We actually have two members of the deaf community. We can even communicate with deaf patients directly. Um, So there's a real opening up of the humanity of healthcare by utilizing AI in the right way. But that's kind of how we're at and where we're at in this healthcare journey that everybody's on Um, um, and and, and why I I have a personal passion to to keep this uh, I help assist in product patient advocacy and HCP uh, support advocacy going. Incredible, Jack. First of all, I'm glad that you and your wife are okay. 
Um, so that is first and foremost. And I do find that those of us in healthcare who gravitate towards innovation, I'll say, changing the way we do things, which, you know, healthcare is just buried in the status quo uh, in this country. Like people are, I don't know why, honestly. So there's there's some of us, <laughs> and I put myself in this category, it's hard earned, but who want to see things improve, um, need to embrace ideas like yours, because we've been doing the same thing over and over again, and clearly it's not working. In fact, it's getting worse. So I want to ask you about a tiny little thing. I just want your opinion about this, and I'm sort of maybe getting a consultation from you for free. But um, so I have just started dabbling with chat GPT in my work, right? So, you know, right now we have physical scribes, we have human being scribes that come into our exam rooms with us and do all of the documenting and also talk to our patients at the end of the visit, kind of recapping the visit. And they serve as an extension of us But like you said, they do the repetitive, you know, like I don't need to repeat the plan of care myself. I already went over it with the patient. So my scribe does that. Um, So seeing a a solution that would maybe enhance or replace the physical scribe, because frankly, sometimes patients are uncomfortable with another human being in the room, whereas maybe another, an avatar in the room might not be as uncomfortable. So I think that's one area where I could see, you know, an AI solution really taking hold. You know, our big health systems, do they seem receptive to this idea um, of, you know, plucking out some, not all, humans that don't necessarily need to be in those exam rooms or before those patients and and substituting an avatar? Do you feel like you're getting a lot of resistance because we believe in the status quo? Yeah, the great, great questions. There's, there's a, um, a, a lot to respond to because that is at the core of a lot of, um, we, we, we call it the why personas. Everybody goes, well, why do I need it? You know, right. that's what that's what that's what kids do with their game is that, you know, cute little characters. And that's what we do with our Facebook memes and create our little uh, person, you know, emoticons and things like that. Um, but the reality is um, um, in the healthcare sector, I think doctors in healthcare practices and hospitals and, and anybody in the healthcare sector um, obviously follow a um process of outcomes, you know, where they believe in outcomes. And there is a lot of resistance just to answer your question more directly. And that that's probably one thing that's probably um, baffled me a little more than I expected when I went into this journey is, is why more people aren't um, um, seeing the benefits directly and then um, at least giving it a shot and saying, hey, how can we make this work better for our patients and for our doctors? Um, but going back to what I'm referring to on their own outcomes, is there actually is beginning, there's there's a number, I wouldn't call it a, a large volume of data uh, of clinical trials and at least some studies that have been done around that. But you keyed on on a few things that I could probably highlight um, and, and I'll try to dig up the references um, um, after the show if, if any of the audience is um, um, interested about some of the uh, responses that humans have to avatars versus um, um, human in, in interaction. Um, all related around that trust factor you're referring to, you know. Um, and we have actually, uh, Christine, done a lot um, in the clinical trial world with that very topic. And what we find overall is a couple of studies that are pretty intriguing, one of which that shows 
if it's too cartoony, you know, if it's more robotic and stick figurey, um, um, we don't believe it. If it's a digital personality or a voice conversation only, we believe it, but we understand it's voice only and it's a Siri and it's only regurgitating the data it has behind it. And once you get to the emotional side of that trust is where we kind of come into the mix and, and our characters like we did. We're doing a trial still ongoing. It's about three years old now with um, it's called the Obo trial. It's a trial um, um, can what are the outcomes of babies born to opioid addicted mothers? And a lot of those are younger minority females um, that don't want to look sit and talk to someone like me. You know, I'm, I'm the I'm the I'm the cliche 57 year old gray haired white male. You know, nobody right. wants to talk to me. Um, so we we created a series of avatars uh, through our partnership with the uh, RTI Institute, um, where we had a young Hispanic female, uh, slightly slightly um, older than teenage, and we had another um, uh, black female. We had a um, couple of character personalities. They would speak Spanish. They would speak English, um, and then put those in front of the uh, patients for um, targeting, for recruitment, and for digital consent. And the reception has been very, very, very positive. Wow. Um, the clinical trials I was referring to, and, and I got a little diverted there, showing that this trust factor, when someone is speaking to a animated character that's too photorealistic, you know, the whole Hollywood creep factor comes in, as I call it, the, the, the uncanny valley is the correct term for it. Um, where if it's too realistic, it tends to creep people out. We as humans are very attuned to gestures and um, um, slight movements, voice inflections. You, know, you and I are talking in our heads. We're shaking our heads just a little bit. And that's a very natural movement for us. But, you know, for millions of years, we've learned how to communicate with um, a lot of our communication being gesture-based. And that's really hard to recreate. So when you get a photorealistic character that's too human, but it's not acting quite right. Mm. It becomes creepy. It's kind of like the <laughs> horror movie where the hit turns a little farther than it needs to, or the joints are spinning a little backwards and you go, oh, that's just creepy. And, and so to stay away from that, the one thing I learned in the gaming space is how to create characters that are endearing, that are trusting, that are very relatable, very relatable. And the relatable thing is what makes them trustworthy. Um, so a lot of our characters um when we do a clinical trial or we're dealing with a certain patient population, we really work with the patient experience teams in the clinical trial, um, um, CTAs and such, and design the characters to be very open and appealing to the demographic. So they're just real enough, you know, a little bit past that Disney-esque cartoony, but not into the photorealistic world. Um, and the reception has been very, very, very positive. And that clinical trial I was referring to that I'll dig up the, the reference for if it's helpful. We'll even show that quantifiably that when a character, when a person is interacting with a character that they relate to culturally and, um, you know, through language, uh, aesthetics uh, um, and gestures and mannerisms, that they trust that avatar more than they animated, more than the photorealistic CGI, and actually, in many cases, more than the human. And a lot of that is because of the judgmental quality, especially in clinical trial. I, I really like our our plays into the clinical trial world because I think um, um, if you can, um, you know, start with the right demographic that's targeted that your study's trying to target, and you're able to recruit, retain, and complete a trial 
you know probably as well as I do, if not much, much better, uh, the, the, the difficulty in recruitment for clinical trial and the mm-hmm. difficulty in keeping patients engaged through a multi-year clinical trial, the dropout rates are, are, are astronomical and the cost and the outcomes are often jeopardized because of that. And I think the number I remember was something astronomical, like 60 or 70% of all clinical trials don't meet their target uh, demographic quantities or something like that. Those numbers are probably wrong, but it was, let's say it was a lot higher Hi. than it should, should have yeah. been. Hi. Um, uh-huh. so, so those are really some of the cool use cases that I think are going to come out of um, um, the healthcare organizations that will open the, the box a little bit and think a little bit outside and, and look at the AI as a productivity booster, not as a human capital replacement. And I mm-hmm. think that's the mental shift we need in the industry. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think that you hit on so many things uh, when you were talking about the opioid uh, addicted young mothers and trying to get them to engage. My daughter is in medical school in New York City. And, you know, one of the things that she had been tasked with was enrolling opioid addicted women who had just delivered babies um, into programs. And, you know, she very clearly describes walking into these hospital rooms where this young, you know, sometimes 17, 18 year old girl just given birth alone. And in comes, you know, my white privileged, you know, med student daughter with a clipboard, you know, asking her a million questions. And she she would roll over and look out the window. Like there was just no way they were going to connect on any level, even though, you know, my daughter had the best intentions. Um, It just was not a connection that was going to happen. So that is just exactly where I could see, you know, AI being so tremendously helpful as a boost as opposed to, you know, a detractor. Um, Do you find that in your own healthcare journey? So, you know, obviously for me as as someone who employs people and needs more staffing and needs more hands on deck, this is tremendously exciting. But having been a patient, can you think of a time where you were tasked to do your own legwork as a patient, where you were like, man, I, if only I had some support here, um, and maybe the doctors just didn't have the time or didn't have the personality? Like, did you experience that in your journey? We we did. Um, I'm a very, I've, I've been dealing in the healthcare sector, at least from a pharmaceutical side for probably 20 years as well. So I I had some, and we had probably done 15 or 20 clinical trials, probably through UNC Network, um, Behavioral Sciences Group, and some other groups locally through RTI. So I had some exposure to uh, clinical trials and being the um, knowledge nerd I am, I, I you know, had some of the government clinical trial sites, and I was able to uh, read through a lot of clinical trials, and I probably uh, talked to um, probably every um, TA on the clinical trials that were relevant to my condition. So I had a little bit of exposure and experience in that. Matter of fact, I was told at one time I was probably an oncologist's worst nightmare (laughs) (laughs) because probably I just recently thumbed up on every clinical trial I could. Um, But getting back to the real relevance of the questions you're asking there is yes, but it was ironic where I ended up landing. It wasn't as much about not having great... um, HCPs around me that were willing to spend as much time as they could. Um, I also found that um, 
even my desire to have more face time with the two or three oncologists I had, I, I went down to MD Anderson and I still go down every year. Wow. But those journeys that were going back and forth, and matter of fact, I just got back three weeks ago. Um, my, my, my fifth clean slate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but it, it, it resonated with me that the patient journey and the patient experience isn't just the point of care. It's what you go through outside of point of care. Yes. That, a burden and an overwhelming uh, burden on, on friends and family. And so the the one of the products that we push under iHealth Assist now is really just an AI concierge service for the hospitals and healthcare facilities. Mm-hmm. Just be able to get patients in. I mean, you know, you know, down at uh, in Houston, the campuses down there are just immense. You feel like you're walking in downtown New York and trying to find where you need to be on the seventh floor for your imaging and you're trying to navigate through the hospital. And a lot of times I found found myself either taking the wrong turn or not planning enough or going, okay, I'm in the hospital now. Where do I need to go? And I just got backwards and there's always construction going on. And also I found myself, you know, burdening the um, uh, professionals going through the, uh, the healthcare workers going through the the halls and asking them questions and stopping them every once in a while. And I go, you know what? It's probably an easier way to, to to get some of those questions answered. You know, where can I catch an Uber? How much yeah. is parking? I got a two-hour stint between my um, blood work and my imaging. So where can I go get a, a hamburger while I'm waiting or a couple, whatever. So um, a lot of the burden that's put on the staff um, in, in the healthcare system is, is around not the point of care and not the uh, medical expertise. So this product we have now called um, um, our AI concierge is really a concierge service that we've done for retail for years. And we just educated it with the knowledge of how do you get around the hospital? You know, how do I get from where I'm at to this? I want to answer some common questions. I need to get my prescription filled. Where do I go? Um, You know, someone told me I needed an imaging. Oh, well, you need to be, you know, someone told me I have an MRI. Well, you need to be an imaging. So just to help patients navigate the complexity of the healthcare system, we're finding is already um, improving patient satisfaction, taking some of the burden off the staff, and it's opening up a um, um, a different vision for what a AI can do. AIs don't have to always be be the expert at okay. Um, I know AI. There's a lot of AI going on for some of you were saying for some of the dictation pieces you needed. Uh, for documenting your case history, there's a lot going on in radiology on how we can do earlier detection from mammograms or diagnostic mammograms, things like that that are going on. Those are big, complex problems. And um, to finish off on why we kind of chose that, too, we're going, well, let, let's look at the walk before you run scenario. Yeah. Before we sit down and try to educate and take the AI and try to make the AI a direct um, support mechanism for healthcare information, EHR records, things like that. There's a lot in their privacies, uh, the data access. Um, the one problem I have personally, and it's not that it's not going to be resolved um, at some point, but um, people still also got to re- realize the generative AIs you hear about chat GPT being the, probably the one that comes to the tip of everybody's tongue when you talk about generative AI is really the amount of bias that's built into the data. You know, you mm-hmm. can't just say, okay, I'm going to put chat GPT and point it to the New England Journal of Medicine. And all of a sudden you've got a diagnostics uh, physician on your hands. That ain't going to happen. Right. That's going to just cause more problems than it helps. So, so that problem, I don't think is um, 
um, addressable by an organization of our size. And even the large ones are going to take you know a long time before they get that right. And as we know in the healthcare system, you know, close enough ain't good enough. Um, yeah, so, right, right. So, um, so the use cases we're focusing on are really um, uh, more on the patient experiential side and things that will help that human journey, not really trying to 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 take on the the breadth of medical knowledge that uh, that you would really need to have to be an uh, effective and a safe use of generative AI. Yeah. So you touched on the patient experience bit, which is such a great uh, area to maybe close on. Uh, so for us, you know, for me as a business owner, you know, I consider healthcare a hospitality industry. I consider patients customers. Uh, if if my customers aren't happy, they're not coming back. They're leaving the terrible Google review and all those things. And, and you know, sometimes we forget that. We think, listen, I'm providing excellent healthcare. That's enough, but it's definitely not enough. You know, we have to provide all the other things. And it's hard and it's very time consuming. So, but we also know that when patients report excellent experiences, they also have better outcomes. They're in the hospital less, their disease states are managed better. I mean, and that's just been proven over and over again. And in fact, now, you know, for us in the US in primary care, much of our reimbursement is directly tied to the patient experience and how patients perceive their experience. And so we are jumping through all kinds of hoops within my practice to better the patient experience. And, and I think it's important and it's it needs to happen, but it is taking away from the time that we spend doing other things because there's only so many hours in the day, you know? And if, if my MA is reviewing somebody's medicine seven different times because they're going to get asked about, did your provider review your medicine? There, then the MA is not focusing on something else. So there's a huge, huge need. Um, and the other thing is within, you know, those big institutions, like you mentioned, uh, MD Anderson, in my area, we have the University of Pennsylvania, which is also, you know, a tremendous tertiary care center. I have so many patients who have cancer, let's say, and I'll say to them, you will get excellent care at the University of Pennsylvania. It's 45 minutes from where my practice is. And patients will say, oh, no, I can't deal with that hospital. I can't, it's so big. Parking is terrible. You know, there's so many people. There's a big, you know, reluctance to engage in a healthcare system like that because of how huge and unmanageable it seems. Enter AI concierge services like you're describing, where that overwhelming sense gets taken away. And it doesn't require a human being from my practice or a human being from Penn's system to do it. I mean, you all of a sudden open the world of better healthcare solutions to so many patients who have been nervous um, because of those very things. So let me ask you to <laughs> the impossible crystal ball question. How, how far away are we realistically, Tech? How soon could you see a true AI solution, either in a small practice like mine or in a huge healthcare system like the University of Pennsylvania? Are we talking years and years and years here? I don't think so. I think the um, outside of a, a quantifiable date saying this is when it's going to happen, I think it's like a lot of technology, it's going to be a rollout. 
So the phased approach, like um, quite honestly, REAI is already in hospitals. Um, um, we have one a new proof of concept going in with the Princess Alexandria Trust outside of London. They have a little different challenge over there outside of the fact that um, their healthcare system isn't arranged as ours. You know, it's a governmental single payer system and they don't have the patient choice. But um, so we focus on slightly different challenges there. Like um, we're going through an early launch right now and it should be, um, hopefully you'll get some news on it. It should be launched probably at the end of this quarter, Q4 or first to Q, uh, Q1 of 2024. But on that one, we're po per um, um, focusing on the language uh, challenges that they have. You know, our, our avatar um, will we'll meet them at the front door and say, welcome to Princess Alexandria. And, and if they speak Romanian or they speak Polish or they speak um, um, Italian or English, we train our, our characters or our sign language. We're doing British sign language for that unit or, you know, for mm -hmm. the deaf patients. And so to, you struck on a point that really is one of our um, everybody, you know, they're all businesses, but uh, hopefully it's a business that does good. One of the value propositions is, is what it is, is, you know, centered around that patient advocacy, that patient experience. Um, so we believe that this rollout with PAH will not only highlight the benefit to the healthcare staff directly, um, and even to the increased patient satisfaction, but really hope and believe that it will kind of be a flagship for um, what does that really mean for the patient journey, for the patient experience, and um, um, what's uh, uh, communication barriers have really met to the healthcare system. And I'm going to tie it back to the clinical trial as well, because I believe it's the communication barrier that's at the core of what we're trying to, to, to tackle. And in the clinical trial world, um, you know, we all know that the majority of participants that are actually active and finish uh, uh, participating in the clinical trial are your middle-aged white males still. Yeah. Um, and so if you think about AI as not human replication, but human communication, I think breaking down and showing at Princess Alexandria Hospital that we've now been able to successfully uh, be a patient advocate for the multicultural diversity that Europe has that we don't necessarily have as much in the U.S., um, um, bridging the deaf community, bridging the multiple languages, bridging the cultural disparities, different disparities, <laughs> differences um, um, outside of London. But I think that will start opening eyes to more of the clinical trial um, world, more of the individual HCPs. Um, as far as when it's available, um, honestly, Dr. Mark, it's it's available now. Ah. We have been selling it. it we've been we've been uh, uh, not as quickly as we thought, and a lot of that goes all the way back to a comment you made in, in your very opening uh, statements. What were so 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 accurate is I see it all the time. It's a little bewildering to me with the challenges we have in healthcare systems in the US and Europe. I mean, we, we've even done one or two in Saudi Arabia and Netherlands. We have one up in the Netherlands. That there isn't more of a, an appetite for it. It's just a little surprising, quite honestly. I don't mean that in a condescending way, no. but it's a little surprising. And I think it's just like everything. It's a matter of education. So um, I guess to wrap that up into your question directly, it's, it's not a question of when the technology is going to be ready. It's when the market, it's when the when the 
C-suites, when the CIOs, when the CTOs, when people start asking for it and when the education is there and they go, oh, I've seen these positive use cases. You know, us in the healthcare system, everything has to have a quantifiable uh, ROI on it or an outcomes, you know, or an outcomes-based community. So mm-hmm. how do you get the outcomes unless someone takes Unless somebody tries it, right? Yeah. So, right. so it's really more of those proof points and the outcomes that we're lacking with the technology. Wow. Well, listen, uh, your story and the work you're doing just has me so excited. You know, I am in my 50s too. I've been in medicine a long, long time. I've been through all kinds of transitions that I didn't think I would survive. Um, but I, at at the core of what we do as healthcare providers is we love taking care of patients. And it's all of the other stuff. It's the noise from the outside that takes away from that. So enter you and the work you're doing with iHealth Assist. And all of a sudden, I see some of that noise going away and then a reset so that my focus becomes you, the patient. Again, uh, I see you know, healthcare provider satisfaction going up. I see more young medical students going into fields that maybe they wouldn't have gone into before because they seem so daunting and overwhelming because of all of the noise. So, you know, I, I feel like this is happening in my lifetime, which is so exciting. Um, maybe before I retire, even we'll see some very significant use of AI in medicine and improve patient outcomes. So thank you. That's that's the biggest thing I want to say to you. Thank you for being in this space. Thank you for considering us, healthcare providers, and our challenges. I'm here for it, everything. So if you ever want to run something by me and see, you know, hey, would you buy into this? Yes, I most likely would. And then uh, maybe that's how it starts. You know, small grassroots start at the core, the doctors, the healthcare providers doing the work, and then those big institutions will have the use cases that they're looking for to make the investment, you know? Yep. All right. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the work you're doing. For everyone listening, this is Chuck Rinker. All of his information is going to be in the show notes. Please uh, check out the important work that he's doing. Chuck, if there's ever anything we can do on our end, I would be happy to hear from you. Thank you again for being here. For all of my listeners, you have just heard a really amazing episode of Tell Me More, Better Conversations in Healthcare. Maybe one day our conversation is going to be happening through an avatar and it really will be better. I look forward to that day very much. If you've had a medical experience, a medical conversation that you want to talk about, please reach out to me, Christine at christinemeyermd.com. Thank you all for being here. Thanks for listening to The Business of Caring with Dr. Christine Meyer. Have you learned a lot by running your own business as a doctor or healthcare provider? Perhaps you're a physician, entrepreneur in training, or someone who has aspirations to own their own business in patient care. We want to hear from you. Join us as a guest on our show. If you'd like more information on today's episode or how to contact Dr. Meyer, visit us online at christinemeyermd.com or send us an email at christine at christinemeyermd.com.